You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Well, girls and boys, the sun's coming up later and later, and the darkness is upon us. But cowpokes like us know that when the going gets cold and dark, we still get going with a double shot and a dawn patrol. That's right, up before the rooster's pecking and the cows are mooing, and out the door for those perfect turns or perfect conditions. And though most of us aren't galloping into the office anymore with hands chalky and our ski pants swishing, doesn't mean that your Dawn Patrol humble brag isn't just as effective when you're five minutes late to that Zoom call. Sorry folks, you casually say, I'm just not myself if I don't get up at three in the morning and go send some sick shit while y'all are sleeping. Black Diamond is here to support your morning mania with equipment for the Dawn Patrol. Headlamps to light up the pre-dawn hours, the perfect layering systems to peel as you heat up and the sun finally does come up. Ski gear for the punch drunk 4am skiers, climbing gear for the unrested and off-route climbers, and even bouldering pads, cause let's face it, you're gonna numb out and dry fire. So wake up buckaroos, and though caffeine may seem like all you need, let Black Diamond supply all the gear you need to get up and get down on your next dawn patrol. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enorma Cast. In this time of pestilence, do you want to reach out to your friends, loved ones, and climbing partners with more than an anxious DM sent while slurping a soggy bowl of Captain Crunch at 2 a.m.? Then why don't you hit up friend of the show, Peter W. Gilroy, and send those socially distanced friends a climbing or mountain-inspired piece of handcrafted jewelry. Or maybe one of his famous titanium tricked-out trucker caps. Yes, titanium on a hat, people. Unique jewelry, hats, money clips, belt buckles, and more amazing accessories can be had with a discount and the bonus of supporting the Enormacast. So why don't you cheer up your pals with a nice surprise that won't glitch and freeze in the middle like an annoying Zoom conversation and go to peterwgilroy.com or splitter-designs.com to check out the wares of a great artist and also a climber just like you. And enter Enormo at checkout for the hookup. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello. Hello. And welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is 
October 31st, 10.03 Mountain Time. Still on standard or day, no, what are we on? Mountain Time? It's about to change tomorrow. Anyway, it's 2020. This is episode 207 of the Enormacast. And on today's show, climber, photographer, videographer, and former wallflower, Tara Kersner. So how are you guys? How's it going? It's been a little while. Took some time off, sort of forced time off. I had a, had a hard time uh, getting the creative juices flowing this month. I also had other concerns this month. I do have, have real jobs that I do. Uh, the Normacast does not pay the bills. Under somebody else's capable hands, it probably could, but not under mine. Anyway, uh, yeah, some other stuff going on, and uh, it's just hard to uh, hard to buck up and be creative. I mean, are you guys having that problem, you creators out there, being a little paralyzed in this climate? Yeah, stressful times, I think, for for a lot of people. But it also is, uh, you know, October, November. It's it's time to be out there rock climbing. So. If you're lucky to be doing that, then uh, then good for you as well. Hopefully, it's helping you keep your head on your shoulders, keep your mind straight. But yeah, then I woke up this morning and did uh, did that commercial that I opened the uh, the show with that made me laugh. I laughed a bunch while I did it. Um, it was actually a little hard to record because I started laughing during the recording. But I did it right out of bed, so my voice was particularly low. That is unaffected, by the way. I didn't use low guy effect. That's just my voice. I can get this low if I need to. And actually, it was probably a lot lower because, of course, when I jump out of bed, I smoke two cigs, drink a quart of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. That gets your voice down there, down here. That's about as low as I can get. I am available for folksy voiceover work if you need anything like that. No, I don't smoke cigs or drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee unless I'm in a pinch. But let me tell you, I thought about smoking the last couple few months sometimes. Then, you know, you're driving somewhere, 7 a.m., you see somebody with their windows rolled up smoking a cig, and it seems hideous, hideous idea. Anyhow, I'm back. We're back. A little bit of time off. What's the big deal? Nobody probably even noticed. And I hope you like that commercial. I I have a belief that people enjoy the commercials. I think it's uh, one of the few podcasts where the commercials are a highlight. At least that's what I hear from folks on email. So um, I put some uh, creativity into them, and I feel bad when I run the same one for a few months in a row because I feel like I'm jipping you guys. So I'm also going to put in an old classic right before the interview, so stay tuned for that. Another another voice impersonation one that I get a kick out of. You got you to gotta be able to amuse yourself. That's a good coping mechanism. Okay, before we get to Tara's interview, though, I'd like to give a shout-out to my friend and longtime friend of the show, Luke Mihal. Luke Mihal of the Climbing Zine, one of the few last independent climbing media sources down there in Durango, Colorado. And, uh, you know, dwindling climbing media, rock and ice, gone. Did you guys know that? Toast. Their, their zombie Instagram is still going, but the magazine, look it up. Whole nother discussion. Anyhow, Luke and the folks at Climbing Zine are still busting it out down in Durango, but they also have a podcast, Dirtbag State of Mind Podcast. Luke is over there doing some readings, having discussions, and you know what? That podcast sounds great. It's one thing I like about it. He nailed the sound right out of the gates. 
So if you're looking for more climbing podcasts in your life, it's a little different, and uh, you should check it out. Dirtbag State of Mind Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. Of course, you can go to climbingzine.com to look it up. And they also have a new issue of the zine out for the fall. So get that as well. Support Luke. He's not going to disappear on you. Okay, let's uh, talk about Tara Kersner. I've known Tara for a little bit, very casually, but I'm starting to get to know her well and uh, consider her a friend of sorts. I hope she feels the same about me. Um, I love being around her. She's uh, very, very funny, very sardonic, uh, has a has a cool wit that I really enjoy and meshes with my own sense of humor. And uh, she's not easily moved. And I admire that, actually. I like someone who's... Uh, you got to convince of certain things. They don't uh, slip into uh, knee-jerk reactions. So enjoyable conversation with Tara, and I think she got a little deeper than even she expected, and we had a good time. We talked quite a bit about how to create art, how to create media. We talk about her place in climbing media as a woman, and she has a stance in the indigenous People's World. She has a connection to the Nez Perce and recently did a very interesting piece of work on the Navajo lands and the COVID response down there. So get into all that. So we go all over the place with Tara and another one connected via the internet, but uh, things are starting to smooth themselves out over in that world. So that's been really interesting for me and opened up a lot of pathways to get new and interesting people on the show. I just think of it and we can get it done versus waiting to uh, meet up somewhere. So it's kind of revealed itself, like it has to a lot of us, as a really useful tool. Right up until intractable technical problems infuriate you and make you look like an idiot. But that didn't happen on this one. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tara Kersner. But first, an enormous cast classic. Hey. What's up? It's your toes talking here. That's a nice alpine climb you got there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. Like when we get cold. Life gets pretty miserable, eh, hotshot? Instead of a ballerina up there, you feel like a walrus. Not a svelte walrus who swims all day, but one of them big ones who lets seagulls crap on them. And if we ever do warm up again, well, get ready to howl like a banshee. And not a cool banshee that scares everybody but one of them banshees the other banshees make fun of for sounding stupid. So get with it, buddy, and get some sick mountain boots from Sportiva. That's right, Italian-made. So high-tech, they're like, what? Oh, we gotta go? All right, just listen to your toes and check out all of Sportiva's ice climbing and big mountain boots at Sportiva.com or your local shop. And tell them your toes sent you. But you're here because... You didn't get to go to Yosemite. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. What was the plan in Yosemite? <laughs> um, I am meant to be working on a film. Uh, ooh, I don't know that this is, this is not my film. So okay. I don't think that it's. Don't um... tell me any details. It's a secret. <laughs> I don't you were, I don't want to be put on the, on the spot here. So yeah, it's a you... rad film here. I'll just be vague. Okay. Uh, and the, one of the parts about it that I was really excited about was that well, first of all, it would be working with a director whom another creative, Jen Randall, who I don't know if you've heard of, but she's no. great. Um, she asked me to be the DP on this film. And the cool part about it is it's uh, the whole production crew is women, which I, I don't think I've ever. I mean, aside from Sladies, but that doesn't really count because we didn't really have a production crew. 
And aside from every film that I've made entirely where I filled all the roles of the production, this is the first time I've worked, will be working on a film that's just all women. And everybody is super rad. And I know that that sounds like really cliche. Like you might just say that even if they weren't rad, but I genuinely mean that. (laughs) And I'm really excited about this film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you might say that. But you are genuinely saying that these people are in fact rad. Um, we will not walk that back later. Well, so how come Slades doesn't count? Why Why did you just say that? Well, I mean, Slades doesn't count because it's not, there's not a production. There wasn't right, a production. Right. Like we kind of just like showed up and started filming. Like, yeah, mm. it was me and Colette. Colette, I actually had a beer with today, which was awesome. Random fact. She's around. Um, but yeah, anyways, it, we just kind of showed up and started filming it. And that oh, was... Okay a lot different than pre-production and like all the film aspects that go into a slightly bigger right. film. Okay. Yeah. So there's other roles besides filmy and filmer, yeah. which is all you really had in Sladies is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there was just like, in, like I said, in Sladies, we just showed up and started filming. It's so true. Like I just didn't really plan anything for that film. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. this film is really cool because we're taking a lot of time to plan you know, Jen is writing the story. We're making a shot list together and uh, it's going to be really, really beautiful. And Jen is, her work is typically like very creative and uh, has a bit of a different look to it. And I, I like it a lot. And what could you, what, what could you send, send us to? You know, the, I know that she's done probably some pieces recently that are that she's probably more proud of. But the right. one that I really liked that is that was kind of how I found her was um, Project Mina. And I just remember it felt like very, there was an intimacy to it that I mm-hmm. liked a lot. And so I remember writing Jen and I feel like after I watched that, I said, thanks, you know, that was great or whatever. And then I met her in um, Squamish for one of the Squamish Exposed events. She was just there and uh, we met briefly. And then... Uh, it's cool that we're connecting now, so I'm really stoked. With that in mind, let me ask you about the uh, the arc of of becoming a creator and and at least starting. It sounds like in the climbing world. I don't know if there was something else before that, but um, were you a climber first or were you a photographer first? Um, I was a photographer first. Okay. I, what well, what I did know. that look like? How did you start into that? Yeah, I don't know if I would have called myself a photographer. I, so I started, my mom had an old Pentax and without get, get, getting into too much detail, I spent a lot of time at home when I was in like my younger years, you know, not to my parents. I don't want to like throw my parents under the bus or anything, but I definitely grew up pretty conservative, pretty like sheltered, not super, not, didn't spend a lot of time like just out doing stuff like my husband uh you know he spent his like late teens driving to the red with his brother you know and i spent my late teens like in my room writing sad poetry and (laughs) (laughs) oh the details we do the the enormous cast is all about the details yeah so um 
If you, like, I don't know if you could rummage around your uh, your your dresser and get some of that for us. Uh, it's um, pretty pretty terrible. I actually right. have reread some of it. It's pretty awful. I think I just needed to express myself really badly during mm-hmm. that time, and okay. I didn't know how. And anyways, I kind of found a camera in my early teen years. It was my mom's. Started right. shooting a bunch of film uh, photography, lots of pictures of the cat, lots of pictures of the cat. Um you know, all black and white. And, you know, I remember my mom kind of being like, all right, like, can't really afford you to just like be going through all this film all the time. But like, I'm glad you like it. They've always been so supportive. But I remember Mm -hmm. them being like a little concerned about the film consumption. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, hold on a second, because you're not that old. No, Um, but so this uh, must have been like, very tail end, if not already into digital and you're like during those crossover years of like film still existed and you could still have it processed. Yeah. And I'm sure it was just because like my parents didn't have like a ton of money and I'm sure like, I mean, I know that they didn't. And so they probably weren't just like buying the newest, latest camera. I think my mom liked photography, but yeah. And the point being is that it was really expensive and the longer people were doing it, Again, after digital, it became more and more and more expensive. Yeah. And so, I mean, even in my day when that was what you shot, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember going on trips with like, honestly, like six rolls of film for like yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks because I was not going to buy a whole bunch more Velvia, you know? Oh my so. God, I have some undeveloped Velvia from oh, really? still like of that. Your cat. Uh, you know, I don't know what's on it. <laughs> I don't know why I like can't take it in. I just it's like sentimental that it's in that in its capsule and I have no idea what it is. It's probably at least 20 years old. Really? Ruined completely. How would you I mean, you can there must be places, right? Still? (laughs) No, totally. I can get it done in Boulder, I think. Oh, okay. But um, yeah, I I don't know. You should set some sort of um, you should create it as a time capsule. Don't you think you should set some sort of future event or future milestone that that triggers you getting this thing developed i mean See, i guess maybe if you put a bunch cool. into it and then it turns out that it's like you know a bunch of bad shutter shots that like right yeah you're just like okay that wasn't that great but. which you know it could be cool if it's like yeah. that i did actually have some problems with my old camera so it's not completely out of the question that that's what happened but but yeah so i Really liked photography. I really liked writing. I'm so glad I chose photography because reflecting back on those old angst, angsty journal entries was pretty terrible at writing. So I think I chose the right one. I remember being at like a crossroads and sort of feeling like I had, I really wanted to put more energy into one or the other, mm-hmm. but I felt like I couldn't do both for some reason. I don't know why. I just remember having this like moment where I was like, you have to choose. <laughs> so I chose photography. And then I think I had the last years where darkroom photography was offered in high school, took it in high school. Um, and then it, I had, I remember I took it in college and I remember that my classes were the last darkroom classes. Right. Yeah. So that's what I mean. You were at yeah. the end of it. Yeah, totally. for sure. Yeah. That's, that's totally cool though. I mean, as a photographer, now, uh, I think that's probably really great to have had a toe dipped into that right at the end. Um, yeah. You know, to understand those things uh, from from that technical aspect is is a lost art, if you will. Um, I mean, sure. literally, it's a lost art. You know, people are just not doing it anymore. 
I, I think it more than anything affected how I edit photos because mm -hmm. I don't love to do too much. I kind of like the idea of, I mean, this is kind of dorky, but just the, what you can do in a, in a dark room. I always really liked the dark room aspect of, uh, film photography. And so sometimes, you know, people do, everybody has a different style with editing, but I feel like for the most part, for the most part, like my personal take on it is more journalistic, less like, you know, try to shoot what it is and shoot it well and shoot it how it should be shot first versus like, because editing in Lightroom digitally is you can do anything you want or in mm -hmm. Photoshop. I don't really like to live by that right. uh, actuality. Well, that sounds, yeah, that sounds very much like it, it, it was that foundation of you get what you get, you know, and you can, you could manipulate yeah. a few things in a dark room, but you know, mostly just contrast mm -hmm. in the end, you know? I mean, I remember burning and dodging too, you know, mm -hmm. like cutting, oh, right. like you'd have like the little oh, that's circle right. I about on the those. little thing and you're yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, well, that was that's awesome. Cool so I got to get a couple more details. Um, just, just basics. Like where did you grow up? I live in less. Bend, Oregon. Bend, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Bend, Oregon. Yeah. That's awesome because that's not on the brochure for Bend. It's sitting in your room writing dark poetry. <laughs> I know. I actually was like so unathletic, like all middle school. Interesting. I just didn't. So I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't and still am not exactly a hand-eye coordination kind of person. I really want to be good at dinoing, but sometimes the like, you know, in climbing, I it's the coordination. Mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll have the distance, but like, if it's a, any sort of precise move, I'll just like, you know, break my fingernails on the, on the wall right next to the hold or whatever. So climbing is good for me because it has like a lot of points on, but, um, I didn't. You should become uh, a track climber. You, you, it's like, you don't need any <laughs> eye hand coordination whatsoever. It's all just right there and you move very slowly. You know, you, I just like to consider myself a climber. Okay, good. Over, yeah. <laughs> Okay, Overall, so back back, all the things. back to the arc. Just uh, you know, I'm always interested in where where people come from, and and uh, having taught high school, I, I've you know, I taught five years of high school, and so I had all types of kids, but there are definitely like archetypes, and um, so I kind of like to find out sort of where everybody fit in. And T Tara moved from her her dark dark room at home to the dark room at high school, and found uh, this calling in in photography. So, um, yeah, so go back to the, back to the story. You're in college. Um, when does climbing fall into the pattern? I wouldn't call it in college because I feel like that would be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I would say I took some college classes. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, but basically, I don't know, to paint your high school picture a little bit more, mm -hmm. I was very awkward. I just have to throw that out there. Okay. Yeah, it was not my best. I spent most of my time in the art room and didn't have that many friends. But, you know, it's all right because I have friends now. That's it's a success story of being very nerdy and awkward and growing into an only mildly awkward adult, I, I would like to think. Anyways, so after high school, I really did want to go to college, actually, but it was tough in my family. Like, there just wasn't... So nobody in my family really, but I mean, it's unfair to say nobody, but it certainly wasn't a popular course to take, to go to college. And I think that the more popular course, especially for women in my family was to just kind of like be married and 
you know, in a nice, wholesome Christian family and leave the parents' house at 18. I think my cousin did that. And I think I remember my grandmother saying something to me, like she wanted me to do that too. And then of course, like my parents didn't have any money saved up. Like my parents have always, for the most part, lived paycheck to paycheck my entire life. Even still now they're uh, school bus drivers. You know, there wasn't an option to -hmm. like just go Mm -hmm. to college. I was so scared of going in debt that I just couldn't imagine going into college debt. And so then I just, I remember really wanting to go to college, but I just like couldn't make myself do it because of the debt and like the fear of, you know, I don't know, like financial issues like my parents had. So, yeah, I mean, it's. So frankly, it was maybe the right decision at this point. I mean, in in retrospect, yeah. um, just the I mean, burdening of debt is this new yeah. generational thing that's that didn't. I mean, you know, I I had parental help, which you did not. But at the time I went to went to college, you could definitely pull it off on your own. Um, and those totally. days have gone. And and so yeah, so maybe your instinct was was positive at that point. I think there's a part of me that always wishes that I had, like I wish that I had only for like legitimacy in my own perception of myself, but I mm-hmm. don't, I, I agree with you that it wasn't, you know, at looking at my career today and where I am now, like I didn't need to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I did totally. 10 years of food service instead. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, but so do college graduates. So it's like, true. Yeah, but make, I guess it depends you know? on if you do it after college graduation, <laughs> right. during or instead of, you know. But I mean, literally, right? This, yeah. Yeah. You live in Boulder. Your servers are the most well educated people in the world, probably. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, but yeah, so I started climbing when I was 18 mm-hmm. after high school. Okay. I graduated how- early from high school thinking that my parents were going to let me move out because I was like, I just wanted freedom so badly. Right. And uh, they were like, no chance. So I stayed a whole year at my parents' house and just worked, saved a bunch of money working at this like fish restaurant as mm-hmm. a hostess and then uh, moved out. <laughs> <laughs> There's something very distinct uh, about a fish restaurant. Yeah. Hostess. Yep. Yeah. 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 My, uh, my girlfriend partner maybe wife we're not married but uh yeah she has great stories about um doing the fryer at some fish restaurant for like oh yeah yeah that smell smell night yeah the smell of working at a fish restaurant (laughs) or a sushi rest i have also worked at a sushi restaurant it's just it's you cannot get it out of your clothes all right so i'm curious and this is this is the norma cast track but where how did uh how did this young woman who's generally awkward and, you know, sort of boarded up in a room, end up uh, finding rock climbing? You know, it's funny. I remember my dad and I have always been really close when I was mm-hmm. growing up. I mean, that was like the one thing that I will say that was good about being boarded up in my room is that, you know, even though I wasn't allowed to go do a lot of the things that normal teenagers did, I did develop this really close bond with my dad growing up that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I think he needed that as much as I did. So anyways, that's good. And we used to watch world's strongest man and other competitions. And I remember seeing climbing and I thought like that looked 
so fun. And I remember kind of wanting to get into it and I just never did. And then I went, eventually ended up going to the climbing gym in Bend, which was in climb at the time, no longer there with uh, two girlfriends. And then I just like got super stoked on it, got a membership, a month membership because it was like, I was, you know, it's a lot of money. But, um, and then I just started going all the time. Weirdly, I got married at a very young age. (laughs) Um, so I have a first marriage (laughs) and then that failed and kind of like my way of dealing with that and like emotionally recovering from that situation was to just climb all the time. And that's all I did. Weirdly, you, you got married at a young age. Yeah, you think it's weird because I grew up religious and got married at a young age. <laughs> no, I just, it's just, yeah. It, well, I mean, it's just like you get married for all sorts of reasons. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, we, we've been sort of like hinting at the religious part of this whole thing and not yeah. really elucidating it. But uh, but yeah, so, so you know, coming out of sort of a sheltered existence yeah. and that a lot of times does end up, yeah, right, getting married early. And then that yeah. quote unquote failed. Well, yeah, so the the guy that I married wasn't a climber when I met him. I actually uh-huh. introduced him to climbing, which at the time, you know, that was a not typical. He did climb a little bit and he started to get into climbing. But when mm-hmm. we divorced, I was like went full into climbing right. and then okay. he kind of just like pulled back from it. It was kind of my fault. I won't get into it, but the way the reason the marriage ended so i definitely like lost some friendships but i was so young though like i just you know how young were you um we met when i was 18 and we got married when i was 21 and got okay. mar- divorced when i was 22 okay yeah that's a whirlwind so, yeah 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 that's a whirlwind for a young person for sure yeah yeah so when you said you just like dropped yourself into climbing to to deal with that was it the act of climbing? Was it the climbing community? Was it the gym community? Um, what sort of like was felt like created that outlet for you? I think it was my first venture into avoidant uh, <laughs> characteristics, <laughs> as a therapist might say. <laughs> you know, I just went to the gym. The first of many? Is that <laughs> yeah. what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah. I uh, just went to the gym like all the time. You know, I, I don't, I, it was before I realized that injuries were a thing and that you had to like pace yourself. I would just go for hours by mm-hmm. myself and just be in the gym alone climbing. You know, and I, I was pretty psyched. On, I was like a V3 gym climber and I still hadn't been outside. And I remember the fish restaurant that I worked at, this guy, Eric, who worked there too, climbed. He climbed out at Smith Rock and he kept inviting me to go. And eventually, like, I finally did go. And this happened like during while I was married. But I kind of started to build this little, like, little crew. And then when I was recovering from the divorce and when all of that was happening, I was just like living in the back of my Subaru at times. And, you know, it was just full of beer cans. I was kind of going through a phase, you know, (laughs) and I was at it just always at Smith Rock, you know, kind of partying and climbing and being the 20 year old that being the teenager, even that I never got to be like, just having a really good time. I'm so glad I did that. Honestly, like, I think Mm -hmm. people may have looked at it from the outside and been like, all right, maybe taper back. But I think that in hindsight, (laughs) you know, being a responsible adult now, I'm so glad that I, 
you know, it let was your rumspringer. I needed it. Yeah. Yeah. I do you remember know, you like know the Amish thing. No. The rumspringer. No. Yeah. It's like the Amish thing where they get to go and just like be crazy for a year or whatever. See, that's what that? I, I would do. It. Yeah, I needed it. No, yeah, that was I mean, exactly that's honestly what, what they do. And then they, they go back. But, uh, but yeah. I mean, it's smart. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody needs out. that. Yeah, you got to totally. let it out. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember one Smith Rock uh, dude, because the crew I ended up like associating with, even though I was still very, fairly new to climbing, were mm-hmm. all like, I mean, the Smith Rock crew is really small, but they were all like really, really strong. And this one guy... Uh, Greg Garrison, do you know him? No. He's kind of old school. Anyways, he, uh, I remember him being like, I like distinctly remember him being like, you know, I think you would climb harder if you didn't drink so much. Because <laughs> I was just bringing like a six pack to the crag every day. And I was in a real phase. Right. I wouldn't call it, I don't think that there was, I'm not sure that, I'm not going to label it. Because, okay. Anyways, um, I really did want to climb better. And I think that's kind of what pulled me off the juice, to be honest. Okay. I don't think was I was an alcoholic. Guy? It was like very low alcohol percentage beer. More than anything, it was like the calorie count and just like, you know. <laughs> Look, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, those things are all probably part of the thing. But I mean, it just, it it uh, I, it's all tied to what you just talked about. I mean, like, you know, when you talk about true alcoholism, you've got these genetic markers for it. And, and, you know, for the most part, there's there's an illness involved. And I think what, yeah, you were you were you were raging. I mean, I I, I talked about not going to college. You know, I went I went to college and uh, I had done all those things in high school, you know, drank and all those things. And so I noticed when I got to high, got to college, I went the other direction and and climbing became this thing. And I was just like, I drank plenty, but I was like, yeah, we got to go this weekend. So let's not do this. But I watched a lot of other kids who, you know, didn't even grow up the way you did, but, you know, lived a nice clean life in high school or whatever. And they all went off the deep end, you know? So you just, you you would have, I mean, there's no different than what you were doing than what like 90% of college freshmen and sophomores do, you know? Yeah. And and you just, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, you can't really, I don't think you can blame yourself for anything else. You just were doing what all these other kids were doing. You just didn't happen to be in college, to be honest yeah. with you. you know? Yeah, no, you're actually right. That's a good perspective on it. I think that yeah. the only reason it felt so like out of place was because I was in like a climbing community, Right. you know? I think of climbing communities now and I'm like nice, wholesome climbers, you know, trying to send their projects. And to be fair, like, that era of Smith Rock climbers, they were trying to send their projects, but they were also raging. Yeah. And I don't think that the era, the current era of Smith Rock climbers are doing that. Well, no, I mean, in the current era of climbing is really different. You know, I was just about to say, yeah, again, you should have become a trad climber (laughs) because you don't have to worry about that stuff. I mean, in all honesty, again, like it, it sounds like you were, we were just talking about how you were on the end of this film era and into this digital era. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there there was a much more of a party mentality around climbing, even when I grew up in it. Um, yeah. Because the performance thing was, or at least looking at performance athletically, is, you know, relatively new in climbing. This idea that, yeah, mm-hmm. I want to I wanna perform better, so I need to diet, and, and or not diet, I need to control my diet 
health for health reasons, um, not necessarily losing weight, but yeah, all that stuff is somewhat new to climbing, even though it seems like it's been with us forever. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, and, and the funny thing is, is that the, the dichotomy between trad and sport in a lot of ways started in that like world of like, well, you know, these sport climbers are weenies because they don't party all night like we do, you know, right. or whatever. So, um, yeah, so it's funny that, yeah, you were, you were sort of like holding on to that as well. And everybody's like, which I'm so know. glad Tara's going to make it. <laughs> I think that some people were really unsure that I was going to make it. I just remember like rolling into the, I would be like on time because I had one like sort of mentor type climbing partner who was mm-hmm. very strict. And I just remember I would roll in on time, but I would just be like, you know, so hungover every day. And right. I mean, I'm not trying to condone this behavior, but. No, no, I don't think it's it's <laughs> coming across like that at all. Do you happen to know uh, Katie Brown? Uh, you know, I don't know her personally, but I know she lives here where I live. And yeah, yeah, I know totally. her story. Obviously, I listened to her uh, talk with you. Actually, right. it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a thing I don't even think we we got into in that is that that this exact. Well, I, I don't know about the drinking, but, you know, sort of I think we talked about it in there. This like getting to live your youth only your 20 something. Um, yeah. The exact yeah. same thing happened to her. Right. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of and, and it happened within the climbing community as well. So mm-hmm. I think it's just part of that, you know, it's like a coming of age or whatever. So um, so yeah. how did you uh, we're going to get back to the photography thing, but now we're in, in deep and all this <laughs> stuff, which is yeah. really cool. I mean, so you so you this guy, you know, talks some sense into you or at least mentioned something that that plants a seed in your head like, hey, maybe I shouldn't, you know, yeah. try to climb hungover every single time. Um, yeah. T- tell me about like uh, emerging out of this phase and, uh, and, and what that kind of looked like. Yeah. I mean, it worked. Like I listened to him. I really respected him. He was a really good climber and like, we were really good friends and he wasn't like the mentor that I talked about earlier, but he did have sort of like a mentor type role. He was also from Bend, born and raised in Bend like me. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like we had, I don't know, I really trusted him. And so I listened to him and he was right. I immediately started climbing harder, like pretty instantly. Mm-hmm. I think it was just the, yeah, just, and I just remember working through the grades. And at the time I didn't have the sense in my climbing to like make a pyramid. Now I'm like, of course you want a pyramid of climbs of varying difficulties because then the harder climb feels easier because you have all this this experience on Climbs that are just a little bit easy, easier and much right. easier. You know, you don't freeze up on that mid-range terrain because you've climbed so much of it. At the time, I was pretty much like in this mentality that I was like, I've climbed a 12A and then I climb a 12B and then a 12C, a 12D, 13A. And I just remember like one and then the next. It wasn't right, like right. trying to, like I had only done like one of each of right. everything. Right. But I remember jumping from 12C to 13A pretty quickly, like right in that phase and kind of being like, whoa, he's right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then from that point wait, on, wait, like, does, I, he, does he know this? I don't think so. All right. It's yeah. interesting. You should tell him. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm I serious. I mean, because yeah, yeah, it's totally. like, it, it would be something for which I think he would take a little bit of pride in that he, he you know help form you into uh you know <laughs> more uh productive part of society if you will but um i mean i think you'd probably feel pretty good about it if you found out 
yeah, I mean, I think he'd be pretty surprised to hear that he had any like lasting impact on me, to be honest. Because right. I think that like the way that I perceived our relationship was probably much different from how he perceived okay. our relationship. I looked up to him, and I think he was kind of like, whatever. He was just like, here's this climber. little urchin that yeah <laughs> <laughs> climbs out of her Subaru, yeah, like a, like Spicoli in uh, Fast Times, but yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. anyways, I had old like climbing. I mean, you've been to Smith, you know how it is. It's no, like, I have not. What? It's a huge fucking hole in my resume. Oh my Gigantic. God. I like just drive a truck through my through I know, so... I'm sorry. It's yeah. I it's it's not a great season. I mean yeah. because it's there's a lot season. of other stuff close by that's good. You have to drive there diagonally from yeah. here. Yeah. And that takes a long it takes a long time to go diagonally any direction in the United States. But yes, I will get there. And when I do, I will be interviewing Mr. Watts if he will consent. But Nevertheless, sorry, it's a giant hole in my resume. I apologize. Well, but, uh, I mean, I certainly can, know a lot about it, so I can fill in the gaps. Yeah, you can gather that it's vertical. It's mm-hmm. all vertical. So learning to climb there, and especially not like filling out a pyramid, I've never really learned how to do anything other than hold a small hold and stand on a smear, which like those skills are amazing. Mm-hmm. And I am so glad that they're my base, but leaving Smith Rock, you know, which is a whole other story, but like leaving Bend and going and climbing in other places, that's really the only time I started to become a better climber because I was so like stuck in this groove of climbing vertical place climbs. And even when I went to rifle for my first trip, I was like, you know what? I think the first route I'm going to project is the eighth day. And that's what I did. And, you know, I did it and I'm happy I did it. But at the same time, it's like, now I go to rifle and I you couldn't like pay me money to go climb a slab. Like all I want to do is climb other stuff just because I've climbed so much slab. All right. So you said um, that's another story, which you don't say that to the enormous cast. Cause <laughs> I mean, that's just like Greg, you know, he was what pulled me oh, out okay. of the bend. All right. All right. Right. So you met Greg. Yeah. Okay. Let's just tell me the story. I mean, I not mean, of meeting, but just that, that was it an easy, easy uh, sort of, removal of yourself were you ready to go i think it was a little bit difficult because i had lived my entire life always financially supporting myself never really having like savings mm-hmm. mind you but still being like really proud that and i think that this comes from watching my parents struggle with money but i remember like it was really important to me to support myself and so quitting a job and moving somewhere random didn't wasn't like something I really wanted to do because it fought against that part of me that wanted to be very much in control of my own financial well-being. And Greg lived in San Francisco and I had no idea what kind of job I could get in San Francisco. You know, here's where not having a college education really fucked me over. Right. I moved down to San Francisco with him. I, I remember being like, yeah, I've got $3,000 in my bank account. I could make it pretty far. And quickly that was gone and I didn't have any money. Yeah, like, let's just move to like the most yeah. expensive place on the planet maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing was is I liked him so much. And sure. like it's, yeah, the yeah, obviously it was a good move because he ended up being the love of my life. But it's still tough for me to look back on those San Francisco days because I just felt so like out of sorts i mean greg was paying for rent like i didn't have any money for lunch you know Mm. i remember being like well we'll eat dinner together you know so 
he, like he's probably he's gonna buy the food right, for dinner, right. you know. So that's gonna be there. It's alright if I don't have money for lunch, you know, because eventually I'll get home and we'll like have dinner together. We'll have dinner together with that yeah. he bought. Yeah, right. which yeah, sucked did, for me. Yeah, but I just did you? I mean, that. you had worked in restaurants. Could you? Did you find a restaurant job? Um, I tried. I was having a hard time finding a restaurant job in San Francisco. Um, I ended up getting this job with this uh, Spanish fashion company. And well, I got a couple of jobs. One is crazy. I ended up working for this woman who I was a personal assistant for a woman who made she she like wrote sex advice books. Imagine my parents surprise <laughs> like <laughs> moves to San Francisco. <laughs> she also like ran a sex toy website. And, like, I got the job because I, like, couldn't find any other job. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, like, she was kind of a crazy lady. I showed up on my first, uh, at my interview, and she had just gotten a bunch of plastic surgery. She's got these big sunglasses on. I'm like, this will be interesting. You know, sure, I'll be your personal assistant. Did that for a little while. And I think I did get one, like, text from my dad that was like, I know. <laughs> or something like that like he just found out like where i was working it was disappointed i know you work for the dildo lady yeah. i know he, like, wait a minute say wait it. a minute dad how do you know that that's your yeah. reply i don't know how i do it i think we're in a don't ask don't tell sort of situation so i just didn't say anything at all um but yeah so then i started working for this other fashion company which was cool because eventually i could work remotely for them i did their mm -hmm. social media mm -hmm. and uh i would like bike across san francisco to their warehouse and um do their social media posts and like enter orders manually and pack orders you know so that kind of stuff do you speak spanish <sighs> i am not a very good spanish speaker sadly okay. i'm on the du duolingo though okay you know um, it's actually, it was a Basque company. And at oh, okay. one point they had... And you certainly don't speak Basque because no. nobody well, besides Basque people speak Basque. Obviously, I know how to say like, <laughs> hello and good morning. But right. like, <laughs> um, no. So I actually lived there for three months at one point. And Greg and I were just sort of traveling all over the world at that point, mm -hmm, climbing. Mm -hmm. And he worked remotely. And that's sort of when we were just kind of like everywhere. You mean you lived in the Basque country? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. So that cool. lasted for a while then. I worked for that company for, yeah, like a few years okay. until eventually I remember one trip where I like snuck away to Oleana from the Basque country to like make this film about Jonathan Segrist. And I remember like kind of lying to the company about why I had to go because I wasn't going to be like, I had to get the time off and they were kind of stingy about time off. And I remember just like sneaking away, doing the film. I sold it to Epic TV for like, an absurdly small amount of money. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. <laughs> and then I just like quit the company because I was super unhappy there anyways. And mm. it was a good like fire under my ass to um, try to make the photography thing work. And I, I think right around that time, I had finally saved up enough money to buy like a real camera, which was the uh, Sony a7R II. It's like the their mirrorless, like their first like badass mirrorless camera that they made. And I saved up for that and bought it. All right. Well, let's go. Let's circle back then. So how is it during this time, um, whether it starts in Bend uh, or through this time in San Francisco working for this company, were you acquiring these skills? I mean, what were you doing to, uh, you know, to actuate yourself as a photographer, which is, is a 
a deeper question than it may sound like because obviously all of us, given a camera, we can operate it, especially now. Um, you can operate a camera, which, you know, in the olden times, being a photographer also meant that you had all these extra skills that most people even didn't have, you know, to yeah. operate a camera. But what is it that you're gaining during this time? And how are you doing it to uh, to be put in a position to be like, I can go make a, a film of, of Jonathan Segrist and sell it to Epic TV and become a photographer? Right. Yeah. So that that journey was definitely like quite long for me. I remember going way back all the way to where I started taking the darkroom classes in high school. I think I was always one of those kids that like, I don't know why I had such low self-esteem. I just did. I just didn't think anything I did was great. It's funny because now I'm like, I just want like young people to believe in themselves. (laughs) You know, I just didn't have a lot of that in my own self at the time. And probably just from being awkward and, you know, whatever, like teased in uh, middle school. But anyways, there was this photography competition and well, it it wasn't a photography competition. That's not the right word. It was like a everybody takes their best photo and you put it on a board and the best of those photos get displayed in a store in downtown Bend. And they picked one of my photos. And I remember just being like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm good at something for the first time in my life. And just being like psyched and really excited about, I don't know, just somebody else liking something that I did. And like kind of from that point on, I got like really into it. And that's sort of what sparked my, maybe this is something you could be good at sort of thing. And then like when I was, it married with the first marriage. His mom was a dog breeder. There were dogs around us all the time. I do love animals. And so I started this, like, I started trying to um, do a photography dog, like a dog photography business where I would mm-hmm. take pictures of people's dogs. It's so random and weird to think about now. But so I was doing that and like kind of making some money. And anytime I could make any money, it didn't matter if it was like $10 or whatever, as long as somebody wanted me to do it for them and wanted to pay me something, anything, it didn't matter what it was that they were paying me, I wanted to do it. And so I just was pursuing anything like that. I started shooting kind of towards the end of that first marriage when I was starting to go out to bars more. And, you know, that I think that it was like the marriage ended and then I just, you know, I didn't really want to sleep or think or anything. And so I would just like, go to these bars and see these live shows and take photos at the shows. And then I eventually built these relationships with the musicians. And then they would bring me to their shows and they would pay me like a very small amount of money, but I would just like go and shoot photos of their live shows and kind of had this little thing going in Bend for a while. And so that was like the first, my first like delve into selling photography was pretty young, like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, like all, all of that. And then um, I didn't sell photos for a while, actually, partly because I just had like one bad experience with one musician who like didn't like one of the photos. And I think at that time I was just like so insecure and like sad. I don't know. I still in angsty teen, still recovering from like youth or whatever, mm-hmm. that it just crump, it like crumbled me. I remember. And I just was like, I can't do this. I'm not going to do it. And meanwhile, like I was getting into climbing and constantly running into Ben Moon, the photographer, not the climber at the climbing gym. You know, he climbed at our gym and I just thought he was like so cool. 
even though like he kind of always seemed really busy and like he had his, I don't know, stuff going on. I eventually ended up making friends with another band photographer, this guy, Tyler Romer, who really impacted me as well. I thought you were going to say another Ben Moon. I was like, what, is there another one? (laughs) No. But like, I would just say like meeting those people and seeing how Tyler actually uh, mentored or like interned or I don't know, assisted. I don't know what the right word is I'm looking for. Got in. Um, He was working for Ben. And so he and Ben kind of had a thing going on. And I just remember thinking that they were so cool. And Tyler was actually my friend. And like we hung out quite a bit and. I kind of saw what it was like from the outside, but sort of thought that it was very unachievable for me personally. When I got into climbing, I started shooting climbing, obviously, because I was sh- I shot everything around me. But when I started traveling with Greg after I moved to San Francisco, we were just going everywhere and climbing. You know, we would be in all these places where all these pro climbers were, and I would take photos of them too, because I just took photos of everyone who was around me. I wasn't trying to take photos of Jonathan Seacrest, but he just like happened to be there. And then we became friends and you shoot photos of your friends and he would be like, Hey, you know, like you should try to sell these to Arcteryx and they, you know, would buy them for their blog or whatever. And eventually like I built these little relationships with people in the industry to, to where I got to the point that I made that video about Jonathan. (laughs) Let me ask you a hard question. You seem like, yeah, you were just shooting everything and these little opportunities were popping up and, and you were taking them and, you know, slowly growing into something bigger. When, when did you feel like, okay, this is for real? And, you know, sub question A is that, you know, when did you feel like you had uh, created yourself, created a style or created a, a vision that would be your own? It was weird because in the beginning I was doing a lot of these like short climbing films and now I'm working on like either bigger production films or doing a lot of still photos, which may, which I'm happy with that combination. But I think in the beginning, and I'm sure that everyone who has hustled in this industry can sympathize with this, it definitely felt like treading water, just trying to keep my head, just trying to stay afloat for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was making just enough to get by just enough not a lot of money in my bank Mm -hmm, account mm -hmm. and you know there was probably for like most of my most of the beginning years i would say that there was probably like a couple of thousand dollars maximum in my bank account at any time which is like a lot for some people for sure but like if anything goes wrong you're like screwed you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like well, and then it's also let's t- let's tie it back to your original angst about these things, you know, yeah. so you're living on at, at a, uh, you know, on a cutting edge that's too tight for, you know, this psychology that you created back. Uh, you said when you were like, I can't go into debt. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, so there's added difficulty. Some people have no problem with that. They're just freewheeling, like whatever. But right. I'm the same way. Like, I can't I can't be like that. I can't live like that. Or you did, but it's difficult to live like that for long periods of time. And mind you, like Greg always was there. So like if Mm -hmm. something were to go wrong, of course, like he would help. But like, I don't know. It just felt like I never wanted to be a burden to him. I just, it's not my personality type to want that or be all right with that. You know, I don't know. So I, I really badly wanted to make it on my own and like, uh, figure it out and um 
it wasn't until kind of the last couple, last few, last three years, I would say, I feel like I'm like still in the water, you know, still paddling, but I'm not like choking on water and like, you know, <laughs> um, the sharks are for the most part, like not coming yeah. around. Let's, we can expand yeah. the metaphor. <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> and I think that like I think of it as like a hump, you know, I feel like I'm over the hump of like having to scrap and hustle and take every single job that comes my way. I mean, I basically do take every job that comes my way and and un- unless under special circumstances, uh, which there have been some of those cases, it's still in a way feels like my career is still blooming, you know, but it's not like. I don't, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm quite there yet. I do feel like my style has established itself though, which like much to my surprise, I didn't mean to like have a style. It just all of a sudden, if I look at my work, you know, from an outside perspective, it's obvious to me that there's a style and I'm like, I, I, it came to me kind of by surprise, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm a bit outside. I'm a bit, I don't know, you could call it imposter syndrome, but also I'm just like in the moment, you know, I'm not necessarily thinking about how it's going to fit my style, if that makes right, sense. I'm right. just trying to get the image that I want to get, but you don't realize sometimes in the moment that if you put all those images together, like you, cer- it certainly has a look, you know? Well, what are the characteristics of that look, do you think? I'm all surprised looking at my work sometimes, like noticing the contrast and colors and stuff like that. Like I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of that sort of leaking through from the film ages, you know? Sometimes like or like the things that were drilled into me in those in those classes in my college years were, um, you know, contrast and light and shooting at the right time of day. And I would I think that that I see all of that, you know, I don't see. And it's weird because like, yeah, it's just contrast and colors and stuff like that. I just feel like I see a lot of that when I look at my work and together it looks like it all kind of fits in that way. So now that you're um, choosing, or at least in a position, well, maybe up until March, right? Uh, you know, it's like you said, you're, you you felt pretty good for the last three years. I'm like, well, what about this year? Right. Um, you know, we started about this talking about how like everything, you know, projects have disappeared and you're supposed to be in Yosemite right now. And maybe that'll happen a little bit later, but um, that had to do less with COVID and more with smoke. But um, yeah, so what what are you drawn to now? What is if you are able to choose and um, if that continues to where you can pass up things and choose other things, what, what are you drawn to as uh, as an artist or as a creator when you have your absolute choice in front of you? I think that there's like a part of me, of course, that just like wants to be financially successful, like wants to like achieve that like moment of I'm not in the water anymore. Like mm-hmm. I can just stand here and breathe, but at the same time, I'm for some reason like pursuing this like slightly more difficult path, of course. And I, I think that if I wanted to go commercial, like super commercial, I think that if I wanted to put all my energy in that direction to make a bunch of money, like I think that that path could be there, you know. But because photography is such a, a passion of mine, like I do find myself wanting to pursue these passion projects that don't necessarily have that sort of Mm -hmm. financial element, which is unfortunate because, you know, I want to get to that point where I feel like I'm not in the water anymore. But like right now I'm just gonna, I'm like electing to stay 
it like and keep treading water and but but with the choice of continuing to do what I want to do and what I want to do is you know continue to shoot climbing obviously but I also have a great interest in um, working with and shooting with indigenous communities native communities my dad and I and my brother obviously but um, my dad is uh, Nez Perce and he was adopted at a young age because his mom died of substance abuse when she was 26 and he didn't have a dad so he grew up without any parents and had like adopted parents but they were quite old and kind of earlier when I mentioned that it was it meant a lot to him to uh, have that really tight relationship with me when I was growing up I think that the reason why it meant so much to him wasn't only because I was his daughter but it was also because he never had that in a way or like he wanted to be what he never had and you know it makes me kind of sad to think about it now sad happy but it the way that he was affected by his life was very real and like I saw that growing up and some of the hardships emotionally that he worked through were really obvious and I was there for him during a lot of those times and still want to be there for him. But, you know, it had a really big effect on me, too, just watching that as we were growing up, as I was growing up. And because we were so close and because he shared so much of his emotions with me, I just remember, like, in the beginning when my career was, like, getting going, I sort of felt like, you know, if there was some way that I could just... I guess, use my, if I, if there's some way that I could just like introduce more like native women to photography or climbing, you know, maybe if his mom could have had something like that, maybe she wouldn't have, I don't know, that's very like short-sighted of me. And that was a very young like thought that I had, but Mm -hmm. in the beginning, that's sort of where it was coming from. Cause I was like, what if she could have had a different life and like, what can I do to like impact some Native women, specifically, I was thinking at the time, like their lives to, you know, I don't know, give them something else. And now that's like really evolved for me. But um, I, I think that's where it started. Mm-hmm. And I grapple a bit with my own identity within that realm because we, my dad and I tried when I was 16 to go register as tribal members, but we we're told that because he couldn't fill out his family tree that we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So that I think became like a catalyst for my own like disbelief in my identity in a way, even though that's so dumb because, you know, if you look at blood quantum or whatever, like uh, my percentage is more than enough to be a, a technical member per like 1800s quantum laws of any tribe in the United States. But like, that mattered to me at the time. And now I'm sort of like, with the help of other native friends that I've like befriended recently and like working through that. But I think that there's this opportunity because now all of a sudden it feels like I have power in like my voice, essentially as a photographer, I can choose things to shoot. You know, I can choose to go shoot something commercial or I can choose apply for a grant that I probably won't get but like I did that recently and I got it and 
you know, was able to go work on a really cool project that paid nothing, basically, <laughs> like covered expenses. But like, right. you know, it was like, it felt like the first step in a direction I'm hoping to continue down. And maybe like, if I continue down that path, maybe there's a, a place where my own conflicts with my identity and my dad's apprehensions about his and pain that comes from his lack of identity could find like some resolution also, you know? I mean, isn't that what art is for? I right. Think. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I'm it's like, I'm just awesome. trying to figure it out through my career. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you, and you're talking about this, this project that you've been posting about the Navajo lands, right? Is yeah. That the, yeah. Okay. Well, let me circle back to that because I want to at least finish with that. But um, a question that kind of pertains to that, is that um you know you you're sort of identified at least within climbing at the moment with the Slady's film that we talked about uh, at length already you know and it just made it just occurred to me that not only are you you know you've lived through the me too movement um which i think had something to do with probably at least the effectiveness of that film or maybe the the um the roots of why you guys made that film um, this this sort of emergence of of women climbers from that lens, and then you know now you're living through the Black Lives Matter movement and having this identity with indigenous cultures sort of puts you in you know a different perspective than than a lot of climbers in terms of that. So how how have those two things maybe they haven't or or have they affected the way you look at your art and way you look at sort of your mission? that you just talked about, um, have, have those two movements of the last few years, uh, affected the way you look at your position and climbing and position as a media, uh, someone who makes media. As far as climbing goes, I definitely never, I think it was just the era that I grew up in and the people that I started climbing in or, or around, but I like never felt, I never felt like there was a barrier. Mm -hmm. If, if any sort of barrier, I, I felt nothing but like welcoming and respect from the climbing community. And I think that's, I don't know, like the Smith Rock climbing community is stereotypically extra nice, but um, <laughs> I didn't feel like at any time that was that much of a problem for me. But in my career, I certainly struggle still to this day with some of the complications that come with being a woman in a male-dominated industry like uh -huh. it definitely I'm not gonna sit here and say that like I have all of these like really sexist things that happen to me on a daily basis but there have certainly been enough to the point where I think everybody should see therapy <laughs> see a therapist if they could I wish that everyone could but I definitely like started seeing a therapist just simply to work through some of the some of the like work relationships that are difficult for me. And they often have to do with like a difference of respect that is sort of given to, to, from my perspective to like, you know, you, you have to earn your respect or you just get it. It felt like sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like, why don't I just have your respect? Why can't you just see my work and that should be enough? And I don't necessarily mean I should walk onto a set and people should just bow down like, oh, so respect. But I don't want someone to like question my ability to do like very basic things, you know? 
And and so that's because of your gender. That's what it feels like. Yeah, right, okay. I mean, I don't think. That no, I mean, anyone... I think it's totally legit. Like that's a legit <laughs> feeling. That's not fake. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. And like, I don't know. I just it's it's not anything ever really that bad. And even like I've had situations with athletes where they've been like totally not respected something that I proposed that was already approved by the brand or whatever. And the athlete is like, you know, this isn't very good. The brand's like, sorry, it's not your choice. It's not your opinion. And I'm sort of sitting back being like, WTF, would you ever do that to like Tim Kemple or like, where does this come from? Like, why can't, why do I have to fight so hard just to get like a baseline respect? That's all I'm asking for is just Mm -hmm. like that baseline. Mm -hmm. It's fine if it's hard to get. And I think the only reason I'm like started seeing a therapist about it was just because like I want to know how to work through that on my end because I don't expect anyone else to change really. I'm just sort of, I need to, the only thing I can control is myself. So I just Mm want to like be able to process that better and easier as it comes my way. And I also don't want to become a person that jumps to that conclusion ever you know, who like experiences a few times and then just starts jumping to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be like, keep a rational head on my body and like, but you know, also, also respect myself enough to like acknowledge that some of those things that happen are kind of fucked up. So I think that that speaks a little bit to how I feel about like the sexism stuff. And Mm then, um, I mean, I've been like not a hundred percent white this whole time, you know, (laughs) hey check it out i mean like i've been like this my whole life it's funny because like for sure my whole life i've been told you know that i look a little different and that's fine whatever people don't really know how to say it you look exotic okay it's not fine actually a lot of people really don't like that i'm i'm just saying for me like i'm not super triggered by that i find it kind Mm -hmm. of annoying um and people should probably check themselves (laughs) before saying that because i think it's Um, there are a lot of emotional consequences when you say something like that to someone and you should understand why, but I'm a little hard to, uh, you know, after the whole therapy thing, I'm like, I'm a little hard to piss off. I kind of am, uh, it takes a (laughs) lot or to like, I guess in, what am I trying to say? It's a little bit hard to like, get me riled up over something Mm -hmm. small, seemingly I'm trying to be sensitive to people who might not think that that's small, but, um, Anyways, for me, when people say stuff like that, like my whole life, you're exotic or like, what are you? You know, in a way, like that's argued, especially for Native people, like because they're so invisible, you know, that just reaffirms that. Mm -hmm. What are you? You're exotic. Like Native American culture is invisible. So you're different too. Like those things say you're different. Yeah. Yeah. It's not always, you know, that's not always respected. Right. And even when I was a kid, like some like racial slurs or whatever, misdirected because I'm like, you know, could be anything really. I've always like go to Spain and look Spanish, go to Mexico and look Mexican, go to Italy Mm -hmm. and look Italian, like kind of just can blend in. Yeah, totally. But in the industry, in the outdoor industry specifically, it's been interesting. Like it seems like some people have, it's like a sudden realization. They're like, wait a second. (laughs) You're, you're, uh, <laughs> you're I got you. You yeah. got something in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which has been like, That's I don't ridiculous. know, slightly <laughs> cringy in That's a way, so... you know, because I've never like <laughs> been, I don't know. I just want to 
I love photography and just want to like take photos and like shoot films. And I want to be respected for my work. For the work. That's it. And that kind of mm-hmm. goes to the gender thing too. Just for the right. work. Just look at the work, you know, look at the work. And if you don't like it, then don't respect me, but at least look at it. And that's what you should be looking at. Um, and so when all of a sudden people are like having this epiphany, you know, which feels like what's in, in some ways happening now to some uh, people, uh, it feels a little bit awkward for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and I've gotten some recent opportunities that are really cool. And I'm so glad, like, it's just such a relief to me that both of the, like, bigger opportunities I've gotten recently were actually recommendations from a photographer I really admire and respect, Corey Rich, who, you know, is it like, hey, you know, I know someone brown, you should hire, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I'm this brown girl. Yeah. You can hire. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think he, I mean, like we've worked together and he hired me for a shoot and I think he like respects my work and I, you know, he's so rad and I just was so relieved when I heard that that's where like the recommendations were coming through because mm-hmm. the bigger things that without going into them, because I don't really want to, but like a couple things that were really cool that happened recently were, yeah, from him. And I was just like, I sent him a text, and, you know, thanks or whatever. And just... Yeah. There's a balance of being like, yes, there should be more brown and black adventure photographers, climbers. Yes, you should be acknowledging them and putting them into places of power. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, all my pro climber friends are like texting me and asking me how to do a land acknowledgement. And I'm like, dudes, <laughs> I don't know. How to do a what? <laughs> a land acknowledgement. Uh, it's like this thing that people are doing on Instagram where they like put a red pin and then they acknowledge the land of like the ancestral lands of the tribe that lived there. Okay. But to me, it feels very like this is a, tr- a buzzword, but like virtue signaling a little mm-hmm, bit because mm-hmm. there's so many like super deep issues that go on, you know, on these lands uh, in reference to the native people and doing a little like land acknowledgement on Instagram is not going to make that better. Uh And so I don't know, like (laughs) it just feels so surface level to me. And if I truly believed that like my friends were like doing not my friends per se, but like the companies and like the people, if I truly believe they were doing the research to like figure out what these issues are, then I would, I feel better about Mm -hmm. that. But Mm -hmm. I still think that a lot of native issues are completely invisible. And I think that land acknowledgements in a way, like I'm, I'm like trying to figure out how I feel about them. You know, um, I'd love for people to just like be a little bit more educated Mm -hmm. about native issues in general. But, um, I think that the outdoor industries like, uh, push for land acknowledgements in the way that it has been a little short sighted and I'd love to see it go deeper so yeah i mean you know it's i i not to defend any necessarily any particular thing but you know i didn't know what you were talking about but yeah. uh, that uh, you know i have this very very limited scope it's of on my the, life right now it's on the instagrams if it has something to do with like paw patrol and you know four-year-old hmm. sort of interest then i have i'm pretty dialed on it and everything else i have no idea what's going on but, um, you know, a lot of these companies and, and everything, you know, it's like stuff is changing and happening so quickly and they're doing sort of a yeah. good faith, best effort catch up. Um, 
you know, because everybody at those companies is also behind and stressed and, you know, don't have childcare. And it's like these things keep coming For out. Sure. Of, you know, yeah. so I, I just feel like there has to be some room to breathe and let, you know, and, and we, they should be judged eventually, but maybe let, let them be judged uh, with a bit of room to breathe until they get their, their ducks in a row, so to speak, because so fair. much of it is like this, you know, knee jerk reaction that they have to do something because Instagram and social media is so yeah. by, you know, it's right in there instant. And, uh, you know, big yeah. companies don't move so fast, you know, <laughs> especially right. when no one has childcare and can't go to the office. For so sure. To and I totally so, get that. It yeah. just, I think it just, the reason why I think it irritates me or irks me or whatever is mm-hmm. just because, is only because of like the invisibility of native issues sure. and native people. And I feel like, <laughs> let me just finish up by asking you about this, uh, this project and you've been, been posting, uh, on Instagram about it is where I've been seeing it. Um, I also know you a little bit personally, so I knew what you were up to, um, just from trying to arrange this, but, uh, Tell us a little bit about this Navajo uh, lands project and what the goal was, because all I've seen is is some images and I haven't really, in my mind, I haven't connected it into uh, sort of a, a goal of what you guys were up to. And I assume that there's going to be more media from this. I applied for a grant like in the thick of COVID in the beginning, in the spring. Uh, Nat Geo was doing an emergency fund for uh, journalists that wanted to cover COVID-19 and, you know, I had been working with Len of Native Out- Natives Outdoors, who I've been working with for like a year or something like that, kind of a random little things, to do a print sale. We ended up raising like $11,000 or something like that for mm-hmm. um, masks and hand sanitizer and like all sorts of things. But I, we, you know, talk a lot on the phone. We've talked about doing a film together. And so we pitched this project together through Nat Geo. And several months later, we get the grant. And it's like not in the thick of it anymore for the Navajo Nation. Like like when we got down there eventually, like they, their case numbers were super low mm-hmm. for the time, which was awesome. But our project was more, it was still COVID-based because COVID is still happening as everyone right. knows. Well, but- wait for just a second. So just to put it in perspective, because this does go around the world, but Navajo lands, which is, you know, generally the four corners, New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, um, was hit, you know, percentage wise, very, very hard by COVID. Yeah. For, In the highest percentage. I think yeah, it was like yeah. right behind New Jersey or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So, so just, I just wanted to kind of back up and, yeah, and mention yeah, totally. the, like the, the basis of, of what the COVID grant and, and what you guys were trying to accomplish down there. So, yeah. Um, and w- what was happening down there was that people were being super affected by COVID. Like the death rate was really high and proportionately. I mean, the size mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. Navajo Nation is about the size of West Virginia to put it into like a size perspective. And um, anyway, so we go down there and a lot of like journalists went down there and covered it. I saw it on the New York Times. I saw, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, like all these journalists go down and cover. They go take a photo of, you know, whatever the oldest looking house that they can find on the Navajo Nation <laughs> with like a sunset behind it. And then they're like, Navajo Nation is being like, struck down by COVID, which is unfortunate because you can tell that comes from like a very white gaze 
Um, mm-hmm. And so what Len and I were trying to accomplish was to tell the story of how COVID-19 was affecting the Navajo Nation through a Native perspective. Mm-hmm. So a couple things happened. One was that we tried to tell a bigger story of the economic impacts, the like U.S. government policy that has affected like the health and inequality of Navajo people for a very long time. Some of those things have resulted in high diabetes rates, um, other sorts of health ailments like, you know, uranium exposure, things like this that are super common on the Navajo Nation and have led to a lot of health complications that are further aggravated by Mm COVID-19. And so you see like this area just get kind of struck down and there's, there are reasons why. And so our story wasn't simply COVID-19 takes out Navajo Nation. It's more like, let's have a look at why let's understand like on an empathetic level, like where this is coming from, why these people are vulnerable, you know, I think there was like this weird vibe I was hearing during COVID where people were like, oh, well, you know, pre-existing conditions, you know, if you're healthy, like nothing will happen. It's like, well, some people don't have the choice of whether or not they can be healthy. You know, they didn't have the choice of whether or not like they were going to be exposed to uranium or, you know, whatever the other like many issues that could have caused like their, you know, other health complications that led to ultimately like maybe a COVID death, you know? So our goal was to go down there and just have a bit more of an in-depth perspective. And so right now we're writing a piece or Len is writing it using my photos. Mm -hmm. We've pitched it to Nat Geo. We're trying to, because the grant was basically just to get us down there and and do it. And then right now we're trying to get, write a story to basically like bring awareness and exposure to the full story, which I think will be really like great for uh, like, helping reveal a little bit more of the intricacies but also like we took photos of people on their farms and like people coming back to like farming Navajo people starting to grow their own food again which is really cool and it's not all like you know that old shack on the horizon and I think that's what was different about us going down there from a native perspective like we had a uh, different look at it versus like a white journalist. You know, we wanted to go and like share the stories of these people without like doing poverty poverty porn. You know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. Yeah. I think that Len is like he knows he's way smarter than me. I mean he's got a PhD in American Indian studies and he's yeah. just a bo- overall boss. He's great. Whatever. But, you took um, those darkroom classes just to yeah. with it. You know, I'm kind of like, we were joking that I have my powwow training wheels on. Nice. So I'm just like, I'm learning and growing through this process, but also just like so honored to have the opportunity to go down and meet so many amazing people down there who are helping their communities. And yeah, Mm -hmm. it was really a very powerful experience on many levels. Awesome. Well, last question then is, uh, what does your climbing look like these days? Um, oh man, I'm kind of in a saga of a project. (laughs) It became a saga, but I'm fine with it, whatever. I like started projecting this thing at the monastery up here in Boulder, Colorado. Then I broke my tailbone. You mean up in Estes, that monastery? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got close. I broke my tailbone. So I took five weeks off or six weeks off. How'd you break your tailbone? Climbing? No, I was just, yeah. 
And then we don't care. <laughs> we, it yeah, it doesn't climbing, matter. I, I wouldn't recommend breaking your tailbone. Rollerblading Two places. Or yeah. Um, Ouch. Anyways, then this fall, I start trying it again. I get close again. And then Cameron Peak Fires, you know, closes right. it. Yep. Which. Now the, um, now the weather's closing out. No, don't say that. Anyways, so I took three weeks off for that. And now I'm, uh, I'm starting. I, I punted at the top right the weekend before it was closed for the fires. So uh, it's become, I'm in my third VHS of the trilogy of this saga of a project okay. now. So All that's right. what's going yeah. on. All right. The third commercial break of Behind the Music. Um, yeah. So so in other words, you're still super into climbing and you're still project oh, yeah. And, yeah, That's hard. Still- it, it is hard to balance the two because I do just love climbing so much. But um, I, I climb just as much as ever. So Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sitting down. And yeah. it's funny because I just keep thinking back to like, you you know, these under your breath, like, well, that's another story. And I don't want to get into the details of that. But um, I think we did a great job here. And I appreciate you uh, you coming on and and, uh, and getting into the details because you did. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. It was just super fun. I appreciate it. I know we've been talking about it for a while. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was super fun. I mean, I didn't even make it through my beer, but that's because I was talking so much. Is that a beer you've been drinking? What is that? Yeah, that's a beer. it's so orange? It's like a hazy, man. It's okay. Colorado. <laughs> I'm still on my uh, on my uh, Mexican beer kick, but since it's starting to get a little cooler, we got to go a little darker with the oh yeah the, the negras. Yep. So anyway, but uh, again, thanks a lot. I'm I'm yeah. very um, happy you. to have gotten to know you a little bit in the last couple of years, and also um, I'm really happy that your vision is out there um, in climbing media because uh, I think it it's a good perspective, and um, we always need different perspectives. And uh, appreciate it. Appreciate all that you do. Thanks. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Tara for sitting down. Trying to crack that uh, hard exterior. Get into the juicy inner workings. She let a few cracks form. You know, it's not really her way to open all the way up. All right, folks, remember that if you dig the show, if you like what's happening over here at the Enormacast, if its existence is even sort of important to you, even if it's just a little entertainment, you can, of course, give back to the podcast, to the free podcast that shows up in your feed fortnightly, sort of fortnightly, pretty close most of the time. Then you can go to enormacast.com, click on the Help Out tab, Do what you can, and if you want to donate some money to the podcast, financial support means a lot, means a whole hell of a lot. You can click on the Donate tab and uh, donate one time or set up a recurring payment, like a subscription. Buck a show would be amazing, but if you can't uh, afford that, then of course I'll keep giving it away for free. You know I will. Okay. If you're out there climbing, finishing the season on the rock climbing, getting into ice climbing, or you're in another part of the world where summertime's just rolling in, of course, be careful. There's lots of people out there right now, so be courteous as well. And of course, check your knot and check the knots of those around you.
Okay, so I had to get into some Ernest Stemming ways in order to get a William Shakespeare so I could stave off that Pumple Stillskin. <laughs> <laughs>